By way of review, what is a Berean besides the name of Michael and Kenzie's baby? Why would they name a baby Berean? Okay, very good. Could everybody hear Heather? Could you say that a little louder, please? Someone who searches the scriptures to find. Okay, so any examples uh, recently of needing to be a Berean? Okay, well, I came across one just this week in my files. It's referring to Romans 8.28. It says, All Christians are loved by God, but only those whose hearts are right toward Him can claim the promised blessing in our text. I submit to you then that the phrase, them that love God, does not refer to all believers, but to a certain class of believers. All Christians are being loved by God at all times, but not all whom he loves choose to love him in return. So what kind of texts go off in your head when you hear a sentence, not all Christians love God? What does that say? So first John four nineteen, right? Go ahead, John. Yeah. Four nineteen. Um, we love God. We love because He first loved us. And a lot of versions have we love yeah. Him because. He first loved us. Doesn't say we should love him, be good to love him, some will love him. Just a statement of fact. We love him. Why? Because he loved us first. So that'll be I hope that came to your mind as you heard that sentence. What else would directly connect love for God and the reality or lack of reality of your relationship with him? Well, that's true. Let's let's think of verses with loving the Lord and where you're at with the Lord. Let's get specific. I mean, all those are true. New creation come and choosing us first are true. What other specific texts talk about our love for God and our relationship with God? Tom. First John five. <clears throat> By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Okay. How about would somebody read First Peter 1 8? First Peter 1 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And 
though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Had Peter ever been to any of these churches in what is now Turkey? No. How, how many of these believers had he ever met? <clears throat> Zero. And yet he just assumes if you're a Christian, if you're one of the people I've talked about already in verses 3 through 5, you love him, even though we haven't seen him. Just assume that. You're not a Christian if you don't love him. Which goes very closely with 1 Corinthians 16.22. Somebody read that one, please. 1 Corinthians 16.22. together, and then just this morning, my quiet time, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does it make any... It's crazy to say that's optional. It's okay to be a believer and not love God. If you don't love the Lord, you're cursed. You're not just a second-class Christian. Okay, So that's being a Berean. It's Here's something, this comes from radio Bible class, okay? This is not like some wacko thing on the internet. It's a fairly respectable group in Michigan. And yet, they say, no, Christians don't all love God. Well, there's verses that say, yeah, they do. And so, being a Berean means that's not true, this is true. Okay, so that's just a, again, a recent example. I found that this week in uh, my files. So... Any other examples you come across of needing to be a Berean? Uh, the topic of homosexuality and, okay. and how, like Corinthians and Romans talk about it, and um, how there's a lot of people. There's this one woman actually who started this documentary and this research program over how homosexuality was put into the Bible in the 50s and how it comes from a Greek word that means something else. Okay, okay, so we need to be right. So this is Abraham, by the way, he's visiting with us this morning. But yeah, you're right, there's a narrative that's in our culture that makes different attempts, including trying to say the Bible says something it doesn't say. Uh, you know, the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah was lack of hospitality or lots of other things and not that sin. And so... We need to be Bereans and go, well, what does Romans and 1 Corinthians and Genesis actually say? And that that's what is going to shape our thinking about homosexuality and not an, a documentary or something else we hear or read. Huh? Just in general, living, living our life that's God-saturated and Bible-saturated, everything that happens during our days, every day, there's answers in the scripture for it. No matter what we come up against or you know, what someone might say, just love it that, you know, by God's grace, as we grow and grow in that grace, you know, we are leaning more and more on God's word as not our no longer our opinions, but right. this is what the word of God says. Right, right. Very good. 
So how can we encourage one another to make progress in being Bereans? This is a desirable thing to be and a helpful thing to be. How do we grow in that? There's a verse in Second uh, Timothy, I think, that says, study to show thyself approved. And that'll work, 2 Timothy 2.15. First, it gives us the word of Lana. Any other ways that would we could help each other grow as Bereans? Meeting together. Okay. I mean, spending time with one another. Right, right. Spending time with other Christians. Um, I think goes a long way, including just as we listen to each other. You know, maybe we say, "Oh, I just heard this." Documentary, or I just read this thing and read about the class, or whatever, just say, you know, what do you think? Or what are you reading these days? And, and how's that shaping your thinking? And just being proactive about the Bible being front and center in our conversations. Okay? Well, any more comments or questions on being Bereans before we keep going? Okay. Any examples of hearing that God needs us lately. I shared a couple last time. Did you hear anything like that lately? I heard one just this week. Not that I listen to Caleb very often, and I always get mad when I do. But um, there was one minute of encouragement. You ever heard those little blips? And uh, so the, the whole minute... The first, you know, 50 seconds were about, you know, believe in yourself, you, you know, don't doubt that you can do, you know, what you need to do, but, you know, just pep talk like godless, and then at the end, God needs us to believe that we can do blah, 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 and I just cringe. God needs me to believe in myself? Like, really? So, what verse that we saw two weeks ago in Acts 17 shapes how I should react to God needs whatever, fill in the blank. 25. What does it say, Ruth? Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He needed anything. So he doesn't need us, he doesn't need our help, he doesn't need our money, he doesn't need our serving, he doesn't need us at all. In contrast, what do we need God for, according to Acts 17? Yeah, so that pretty much covers <laughs> the waterfront, doesn't it? You're, you're alive right now. God gave you that. We're breathing right now. God gave us that. Everything else, God gave us that. And then later it says, in Him we live and move. So if you're moving and have our being, we exist. <coughs> it's all from God. So we are absolutely dependent on God for everything, God is absolutely dependent on us for nothing. So, big contrast between who we are and who God is. So any comments or questions about who needs what? <laughs> or who needs whom? And then last but not least, what does God call all people everywhere to do? To repent. Okay, what does repent mean, Shelley? Turn. So we're going away from God to come to God. It means we have to do a U-turn and head the right direction. 
forsake sin, turn to God. All right, let's start chapter 18 then of Acts. Would somebody read the first six verses? After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So this has been Paul's pattern in the different cities he goes to. He starts at the synagogue, reasons from the scriptures to point that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Um, And once again, what kind of reaction did he get? They opposed and reviled him. Yeah, so that didn't go so well. Uh, so he turns to the Gentiles. There's a couple interesting statements in 1 Corinthians about his visit to Corinth. If you want to go to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 2, somebody read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but upon the power of God. So this is his reflection on Acts 18. When I went to Corinth, this is how I was processing all that. And then also in chapter 1, would somebody read 18 and then 23 and 24? Mm-hmm. Then for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then what? 23 and 24. Okay. So we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay. Paul says, everywhere I go, including when I went to Corinth, I'm going to talk to a group of people, some Jews, some Gentiles, the Jews in the crowd are going to say that's a stumbling block. I can't get over the idea of a crucified Messiah because he who hangs on a tree is under God's curse, according to Deuteronomy. So I trip up over that. And the Gentiles say that's just nonsense. The word that gives us the word moron. Probably sound like a moron when you talk about this God of yours coming to earth, <coughs> being a man and dying. He says, I, I get that, I expect that, but <laughs> I also know that as God is working, the called, effectual call, 
will hear that same message that's a stumbling block and foolishness and go, that's the wisdom and power of God. So many are called in a general way. That's Paul talking to everybody. Let me tell you about Jesus. Come to him. It's a general call. Come. And most will say, forget it. It's nonsense. But some, the call, will say, yes, the wisdom and power of God. Okay? That happened in Corinth. That happened in your life and my life. That's how the gospel works. It's, it has resistance to, by many. It's embraced by some who are the call. So, any questions or comments on that? Well, that was easy. People get excited about that one. Okay, let's read 18, 7 through 11, back in Acts 18. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justice, the worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed there for a year and a half. Teaching them the word of God. Thank you. So what starts happening in Corinth, even though there was a lot of resistance and even blasphemy in the synagogue, when he goes to the Gentiles, what starts happening? Many of the Christians here in Paul believe. Yeah, so many are believing and getting baptized, including who? The leader of the synagogue? Yeah, the leader of the synagogue, which, remember, he spent a few weeks there, that didn't go well. The very leader of that group of Jewish people comes to Christ along with his household and believes in the baptized. So, like God is working, why might Paul be tempted to be afraid? <coughs> Jesus appears to him and says, don't be afraid, stop being afraid. Why might Paul be that? Well, everywhere he goes, they want to stone him and get rid of him. And yeah, that would take a toll and a while, right? I mean, Paul's one tough guy. I mean, he's Navy SEAL material. <laughs> but he acknowledges, I mean, remember he says we had fightings without fears within, Second Corinthians. And here, I mean, Jesus doesn't give useless counsel. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, but you aren't. <laughs> or won't be. So he is sensing some kind of fear, probably because of the very real probability of persecution, again, everywhere he goes. So what are some ways the Lord encourages him? Kind of three main pieces. Just don't be afraid. Just start. Do not be afraid. Okay, just the word itself. From hearing from Jesus, don't be afraid, would be encouraging, sure. sure I'll be with you. Remember, what's the last sentence in the Great Commission? <coughs> I'm with you until the 
promises go, which is what Paul's doing, I'll be with you. And he reaffirms it. I'll be with you here in Corinth. I'll be with you everywhere you go. I'll have, you'll have my presence. Not only my presence, but what else? I will what? I'll protect you. <coughs> Even though you have some fears, harm is going to happen to you. I'll protect you from harm at least here. <laughs> no guarantees for down the road, but at least in Corinth, you want to be harmed. And then what's the third piece or fourth piece that anybody might help? We urge them to go on. Okay, so keep going. More souls. <coughs> right? Okay. Isn't that a fascinating phrase? I have already many people in this city, so keep preaching. So that reminds me of John 10. Tell me to read John 10, 14 to 16. <coughs> shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. But if the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Okay, so I know my own, and I have other sheep, and I must bring them, and they will hear my voice. They will follow me. So, I have many people. They just need to be gathered. You know, become sheep. Remember John 10? You, it says, same chapter, um, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. So, there's this category of sheep and there's category of non-sheep. Jesus says, I have sheep everywhere and I'm sending Paul and the rest of us to go gather them, and all that the Father has given me will come. John 6, 37. Yeah. So, this isn't a fruitless mission, Paul. I have some people that will come because they already belong to me. And you need to gather them through staying there and preaching. So it's not without means, still through the means of preaching the gospel, but the outcome is secure. They will come. Any questions on that? Got massive doses of sovereignty this morning. Because it happens to be in the Bible. In Acts 18 and lots of other places. Okay. Any questions on that then? We, what was the outcome? So what does Paul do? around a year and a half and keeps okay. So, I mean, does stay in Ephesus for two years, but Corinth is the most after that, a year and a half. I mean, he's a church, he's going around. I mean, he wants to evangelize, gather some believers, appoint some leaders, move on. Remember? He, he, he doesn't literally stay in one place very long, but he stays there a year and a half and gathers this church known as the Church of Corinth. Okay, let's go to 12 through 17. Not all rainbows and unicorns. Um, 12 through 17. Uh, 
But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourself. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So, what's a pattern that we've seen before in Acts happening here again? I'll give you a hint. Happened in Jerusalem twice. Happened in Antioch and Iconium and Thessalonica and Berea and now Corinth. What's the pattern? The Jews try to make a case to the civil law, to the governors, the, uh, and, and the governors say, not, not concerned. Okay, yeah, and that, that's the new twist at the end about not concerned, but definitely the, he's preaching, things are going well, there's a gathering, many are believing, getting baptized, and then here comes a wrench. <laughs> Usually the Jews starting up something, causing trouble, in this case actually appealing to Roman authorities instead of just getting rocks out or a mob formed or whatever else, but th that there's just always this opposition. It's not just this revival happens in Corinth and nothing ever happened, including Jesus saying, I'll protect you. It doesn't mean nothing negative will happen there. It means poor, what's his name, gets beaten <laughs> right in front of the governor. It's like, wow, that's harsh. <laughs> so, it, it, again, just not surprising that this persecution just keeps showing its head. Um, 18 through 21. Somebody read that, please. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencri, he had he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with, with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Okay, so how does Paul describe his travel plans? <clears throat> Yes, if God wills, I'll come back. So Calvin and Alexa, do you have any examples of travel plans and God's will like lately in your life? <laughs> yeah, so they were supposed to come a week ago Friday, arrived at 10.30 in the morning at Omaha, and you got in at 11.30 at night, was it? 12.30 at night. And then they brought their friend Joyce along, she was supposed to fly out on Wednesday, and she flew out Friday afternoon. So, um, any other examples besides that recent one of, oh, I have these plans, and it went much differently than 
the plan I had in my head. We were going to go to Hot Springs, South Dakota. Yeah, you guys have one this week too, don't you? And then all the, all the roads got closed, and it almost seemed to them, to my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, that it was right in God's eyes that our father-in-law went with them. For some reason, instead of us watching God wanted the father, our father, her father, to see the new place. Hmm. It just kind of seemed like that to them. Well, let's look at some texts that remind us of why saying if the Lord wills is a, a healthy practice, at least in our minds, if not out loud. James 4. James 4, would somebody read 13 through 16? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So here's these big plans. Got it all figured out. Be there a year and make a profit. Got it all set. You know what time we're leaving. Like You don't know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. <laughs> you might be like that rich fool that God said, tonight your soul is required of you. So... Just this consciousness of our life is in God's hands, our plans are in God's hands, and so if the Lord wills, I'll wake up tomorrow morning and also do this or that. Take a trip to wherever, or... So, so that consciousness of, I'm not in control. I can't control the weather, I can't control Southwest Airlines, I can't control the interstate, I can't control my own health, I can't control anything. I am utterly dependent on God. If God wills, I'll do this. A couple other examples. 1 Corinthians 4.19 1 Corinthians 4.19 But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of this arrogant people, but their power. And so here's Paul again saying, I've got your plans, but I submit those to God's final approval, not I'm going to be there no matter what. Um, also in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7. 16, verse 7. Proverbs 16, 9. Proverbs 16, verse 9. Proverbs 16, 
Thank you. And last, Jeremiah 10, 23. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. I know, O oh Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, but is not in man who walks to direct his steps. So it seems like a consistent testimony of Scripture is we need to be mindful that we're not in charge. Does that mean we should never make plans? Is, there, is it wrong to make plans? No. Um, Proverbs talks about look at the ant. They plan ahead for winter. So there is something to be said for planning. It's just not planning in a godless way. As if you're the only one in determining what will happen in the future and not recognizing God is ultimately the one that this will happen or not happen. So it's okay to plan, but don't leave God out of it. Um, there's an Italian proverb that says, if you want to make God laugh, you tell him your plans. And that's a little cynical. I don't think God's just waiting for a good laugh at our expense. But the point is there. It's like, we have these grandiose plans for our life and future, and God be where it'll have a different plan. And his plan is always going to be the one that happens, not ours. So, any other thoughts or comments on that? I think it is a good opportunity for us to see God's will, though, because we think we know and we don't what God will do. And so it's, I don't know, it, it can be eye-opening to see that something doesn't happen the way you, and usually it turns out for whatever God's will is, and you can maybe see that with hindsight right. in your personal life, and certainly in... Yeah, the hindsight life. always helps, doesn't it? So looking back, go, oh, I can see why, and maybe we won't have that until heaven on something, but um, yeah, if, there is a, if God has a different will than ours, it's because it's better, not because it's going to be worse. <laughs> His ways are better than our ways. So it's not like, oh man, God, you you messed up my life because I didn't get to do X. It's like, Lord, you spared me something and you were looking out for me and you gave me something better by closing that door and opening this door. Yeah, I think that is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. 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 And sometimes again, sometimes we can see it at the time, sometimes we might not for a while. I was kind of just reading through the passages to praying within God's will, like the ultimate example of Jesus in Luke 22 at the Mount of Olives, saying, First, we do, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Okay, perfect example. Thank you. Good. Yeah, and then even in the Lord's Prayer, which is a, a, a sample prayer, you know, your will be done, your kingdom be done. <coughs> Ultimately, the bottom line is, I want God's will in my life and not my will be done. I think that can sometimes hit each other, but this is the best. Okay. Well, let's go to 22 and 23 back in Acts 18. 22 and 23. Some time in Antioch, all set out from there and traveled from 
place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, so, what does Paul do wherever he goes with the disciples? Okay, they don't just have coffee, which is, I mean, maybe they did. But while they're having coffee, he's strengthening the disciples. So what would that look like? How, how do you strengthen the soul of a disciple? How, how would Paul do it? How, how do we do that for each other? It's encouragement. Encouragement? Okay. Good. Tom? At Christmas time, we just had Jacob's family and Natalie's family. We had a good day, but at one point, Jacob and I and, and Natalie's husband, Jack, were in the garage alone, and we just started talking about what God's teaching us, and who God is, and his, we're talking about his sovereignty, and it was such an encouraging conversation, we all went away from there, you because know, we saw an example of being Bereans, and questions came up, and we went to God's word, and it was such an encouraging conversation, so things like that. Yeah. Any other ways we can... Strengthen one another's souls. And Paul would have shared some testimonies of his experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had some stories to tell, didn't he? Yeah. That would be strengthening. Another example I think of is uh, Jonathan with David. Remember it says he strengthened... Uh, not Solomon. Jonathan. Excuse me. Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord. So again, and the way he did it was pointing to what God had said. <coughs> he will be king. God had said that. So indirect way, it's pointing to God's word. So I think anytime we can point each other to God and his word, it's a way of strengthening each other. If we just keep it at horizontal level, and again, leave God out and just say, it'll be okay. Well, not Christian can say that. <laughs> you know, just cross your fingers. Is that the best we have? I mean... God will cause this to work together for good. Or God is a person that said something about this situation. Or you know, keep bringing it back to God and His Word. That's what strengthens hearts, and not just psychological. You've got this. Also, It'll be okay. Also, just reminders of God's faithfulness in the past. Mm. <coughs> Remember when you were struggling with this? Yeah. Good. 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 Any thoughts? Uh, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So singing and worshiping together is a way. Yeah. So as we, I don't, we don't sing it today, but as we sing Great is Thy Faithfulness, we're doing what Heather just said. We're recalling God's goodness and faithfulness to us in the past. Or it is well with my soul. We're affirming truth that you know God is in charge. You know, so yeah, that corporate worship with our brothers and sisters, and um, you know, sometimes you look at someone who's maybe you know. I think about Mary. I don't know how many of you can see Mary in the front row, but like when we sing songs about heaven, and you know, having just lost her husband a year and a half ago, and not probably very long for going there herself, she just has this countenance. Right? How would you describe her countenance, Anton? It is. The glow? 
<laughs> it glowed. Yeah, there's a, it, it's radiant. It's like this joy of this senior saint just singing these words about going home to heaven, and not just to be with um, her husband, but to be with the Lord. And you just see it. And so that strengthens souls just seeing, being worshiping together and singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs together. Right? Any other ways we can strengthen one another's souls? Praying together, sure. That's big. Very big. David, just thinking of the impact of trials in our lives. And, you know, the, more we, the longer we live, the more trials that typically we've gone through, and the more God has strengthened our faith through those trials. So just being around the body and you know, listening to young couples <coughs> struggle with things we struggled with 30 years ago. And, Encouraging them to trust God and that He is the author of that trial. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the benefits of being a multi generational church. Is, um, there are some veterans, parents, who can encourage the noobs as far as, yeah, you'll get through this. And again, more than just you'll get through this, because even a non Christian can say that. But we went through that too, and here's how God got us through. You know, let me tell you a testimony of. God getting us through a trial with our kids or whatever it was. Yeah. God comforts us. God, we comfort others with his comfort. Yeah, Second Corinthians 1. Yeah, good. Yeah, all after that, we ran into Dan and Cindy, Cindy Whiting <clears throat> this week and uh, just always encouraged, you know, when I have a conversation with them. But Cindy's been going through quite a few health things, but just their, their hope is in Christ and their hope is in God is good through the many, many difficulties they've been through. And you can just see it in their eyes, though they wish they weren't going through these things. Their hope is in that, that God is good, and that God is doing good things in their lives, despite um, the many hardships that they've had. So, yeah, speaking to the generational uh, help that we get through eyes that have seen and lived through things. Good. Very good. Well, let's close off the chapter 24 to 28, please. Now Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. <coughs> he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the, the way more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Thank you. Um, <coughs> so what are some things Apollos has going for him? He's competent in the scripture. Okay. Um, some versions even have mighty in scripture. Well spoken. Yeah. Very eloquent. Very articulate. What else? 
okay, good, and he's been instructed. And he's also fervent. He's pretty excited about what he's teaching. But what's something he's lacking? A little louder, Abraham? For the knowledge of Jesus in his life. Yeah, some, something's not quite right that a Paulson or, or a Aquila and Priscilla need to take him aside privately and just explain to him the way of God more accurately. So there's some gaps, even though he had so much going for him, there were just some pieces that he needed filled in. And they did. <coughs> um, what would be some dynamics on both sides of that? Like, if you're a Quill and Priscilla, why might that, why might you hesitate to do that? Well, they were good friends. Okay, they're friends. They were good friends in in order to approach him and lovingly want to help him. Okay. But, but wouldn't it be possible that the thought would be, well, who are we to judge? You know, who are we to say anything? I mean, the... He's young and he's so excited and he's so articulate and he's really handling the Bible well. I mean, maybe we should just be quiet. Don't you think that would be possible? We don't want to make a conflict. Yeah, don't rock the boat. He's yeah. doing fine. <laughs> and what would possibly, again, this is speculation, but how might Apollos react if he wasn't well grounded and mature? Just get mad and leave. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you? Who do you think you are? Look at me. You know, I've got this. So, thankfully, both sides got past those kind of things. A um, couple Proverbs that seem to speak of Apollos' attitude. Proverbs 10.17. <coughs> Proverbs 10.17. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. Okay. So that's Apollos, isn't it? He heeded an instruction. He said, oh, okay, thank you. Not you know, pushing them away and say, no, thank you. And also 1531. 1531. <coughs> the year that listens to life giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Life giving reproof. reproof means you need to be corrected. Reproof isn't just, hey, add a boy, encouraging. It's, you know, we need to work on this. Um, so if you listen to that kind of response, maybe from your spouse or brother or sister in Christ, go dwell among the wise. Instead of resisting it, go getting defensive or whatever, which is easy to do. Last but not least, how is it that people believe according to 1827 through grace through grace what's well, grace undeserved <coughs> unearned unrepayable <coughs> kindness and favor to those who deserve <coughs> condemnation and wrath so there was nothing, it wasn't like, it's just sheer grace that any believe, according to that verse. It, we believe through grace. And, and there's no other reason we believe, ultimately. It has to be God working in us. 
by his grace. So let's close in prayer and Todd, would you lead us, please? Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful to be here this morning and by your grace to love you and not hate you. To love these words in this book and not hate them. Because that's your grace and grace alone. It's not our work, it's by faith, apart from our works. We're just so thankful for your love for us, thankful for Christ and your spirit is doing in each of us through this good book. I just pray that you would give us all a, a growing hunger and thirst for your word in 2023. And that the effect of that would be trust and faith. We ask for this. <coughs>